You may kick it off. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Soylent Green podcast. At Soylent Green, our goal is to provide access to the happenings in climate change research. We want to invite you to listen as we pick the brains of our guests to learn how smart people are trying to provide answers to some of the biggest questions about climate change and other environmental issues. My name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm currently studying soil and crop sciences at Colorado State University. And my name is Levi Johnson. I also am a soil scientist, just recently graduated last year from CSU, also with soil and crop science degree. Today, our guest is Scott Skogerbo. He is the head propagator for the Fort Collins Wholesale Nursery, has been there since 1996, located on North Shields, just north of Willicks, for anybody locally in the area. Fort Collins Wholesale Nursery has been in operation since 1931. They specialize in trees, shrubs, perennials, and grasses that thrive in the Rocky Mountain region. Additionally, they work with the Denver Botanic Gardens and Colorado State University to provide the best cultivars for the region, as well as hard-to-find varieties that came from the USDA's abandoned research station, which we will get into later on in the episode. Welcome, Scott. Awesome to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Levi and Lisa Marie. Soil and Green, I like to name your podcast, you know, <laughs> The you. Soil. You gotta tell them, Silent Green is people! Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. First, could you tell us a little bit about your job and what you do at the nursery? Yes, I'm the head propagator. We, at Fort Collins Wholesale Nursery, grow primarily woody plants, trees and shrubs, and we grow... Well, depends on the year, but about 200,000, sometimes 300,000 trees and shrubs every year. And that was my only job at the nursery. You know, I'm one of these guys that got a good job, and I said, hmm, I think I'm going to just stay here. <laughs> it does sound like a good job. Yeah, so we have, well, 10 greenhouses where we fill them up once a year in woody plants. They're long-lived beans. So we'll fill them up a year and then put them in bigger pots and they go out into our nursery and then we fill up the greenhouses again. So over all these years, we've grown about 7 million wow. trees and shrubs. And so I can go from places of Sheridan, Wyoming, Salt Lake City, Utah, Albuquerque, New Mexico, everywhere in Colorado, and I can see trees that I've You're responsible. Little tree children. <laughs> they are. They're my tree children. You mentioned that your nursery sells wholesale. Who are your clients mainly? Is it municipalities? Is it landscaping companies, et cetera? Yeah, we grow trees primarily for landscapers, municipalities by a lot, and about oh, 40% go to garden centers. Can you talk about your work with native plant propagation? Yeah, that was the primary reason why I was hired to be the propagator. I was the first propagator hired full-time at the nursery is because the former owner, his name was Gary Epstein, wanted to grow native plants because there was a big demand for them, especially in years of drought. And people became concerned about them having high water bills. And not only that, but a lot of our native plants are beautiful. And so he tried to buy them and they were in such short supply that just couldn't get them. A lot of nurseries would say, oh yeah, we can give you a thousand tall western sages. And so they would germinate the seeds in January in the greenhouse, put them in a pot, and he'd sell these plants that were an inch tall, that were only three months old, and he'd put them in a bigger pot and most of them would die. <laughs> and so there's a growing technique called vernalization is just let them sleep in the wintertime. 
get them through their dormancy, and then they have grow power. So vernalization is the requirement for a period of exposure to low temperatures before the plant's apical meristem will transition from vegetative to reproductive development. Essentially, this is just an adaptation that plants have developed to protect themselves from flowering before frost. Vernalization times can vary between species, and research is still being done to understand the physiology behind this phenomenon. Researchers who study vernalization in Arabidopsis, which is the typical model species to study plant biology since it was the first plant to have its entire genome sequenced. At the genetic level, exposure to cold induces expression of the vernalization and sensitive 3 gene, which interacts with the vernalization 2 BRN2 gene to reduce flowering locus C, or FLC, a transcription factor. This triggers the recruitment of chromatin-modifying complexes that silences flowering. Then these certain proteins work with the chromatin modifiers to increase histone. Then each vernalization-insensitive family protein binds to a modified histone peptide and hangs out with a specific set of FLC-modified chromatin, which in turn silences the flowering loci. So next time you see that little weed growing out in the crack of a sidewalk, stop to appreciate how incredibly complex and resilient that little guy is. Maybe that'll make the fact that you got three parking tickets in one week seem a little less important. So that was what I did is I started growing these plants that primarily they were the natives. And I would start the seed in April, grow them all the way through October is when they usually go into dormancy, let them go to sleep in the wintertime. Our greenhouses would have heaters, but they would turn on when the temperature got down to 10 because that's the root-killing temperature of Mm. the roots because they evolved differently from the tops. The tops were exposed to 20 below zero, 30 below zero, but the roots were exposed because of protection from the earth's soils and then heated from below from the molten core. You know, they'd freeze, but it would be 10 or above. And so that's what we had to protect them from. And then in the spring, we would pop them up into one-gallon pots and they would grow. We had a lot of trial and error over the years, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But that's what the system would grow. And our nursery is 80 acres, and we have 30 blocks of trees. In those blocks, there's 180 cold frames. And that would protect our older plants from the root-killing temperatures of 10 degrees. And we're wholesale only, so people really don't know about us unless you're in the nursery business already or if you're a landscaper or work for a municipality. But if you're driving down Shield Street north of Willex and you look off to the east, you'll see 180 greenhouses, and that's us. What kind of native plants are you propagating now? Well, my favorites are the oaks, and the gamble oak is Colorado's premier native oak. You know, and it doesn't grow in northern Colorado. It appears once you get south of Denver around Castle Rock and Douglas County and all throughout southern Colorado and on the western slopes all over the place. Is this that like shrubby looking one? It is a shrubby one, yeah. Gamble Oaks are named after William Gamble, an American botanist from Philly who at the age of 18 set out to collect plants in the West and became one of the first people to describe species in California and New Mexico. From my personal experience, I've noticed the gamble oak growing on the foothills of mountains, typically at southern-facing reliefs of quote-unquote moderate to steep slopes, according to the USDA website. These characteristics allow the gamble oak to inhabit erosion-prone habitats while providing ecosystem services to birds, 
rodents, deer, bears, and other animals relying on the Campbell's acorns for sustenance in the fall. If you're a hiker or biker and you're in the Rockies in the summer, you'll appreciate the shade they provide, despite their small size. In the fall, their lovely yellow to red foliage contributes to the smattering of the aspens' explosion of yellow all across the mountains. While I wasn't able to find a lot on their ecology, I did find that they are known to grow with and in ecotones of ponderosa pine, white firs, and Douglas firs, along with a myriad other shrubs and understory plants. But there's an interesting thing about the gamble oak is that during the last ice age, during the Pleistocene, Colorado's weather was much cooler and much wetter. And so the eastern oaks over those thousands and thousands of years crept along the rivers and made it into Colorado. And all white oaks, the bur oak, the gamble oak, and the chinquapin oak, all of them can hybridize with any other white oak. So you have these complexes and hybrids. And so left over from the Pleistocene in southeastern Colorado, there's this wonderful oak called the Quercus mazii. It's leftover hybrid from the Ice Age. And it made these trees that look like gamble oaks, but they're big and single trunk like a bur oak. And so we grow those, and there's a really cool one we're growing right now. It comes out of central west New Mexico, 7,000-foot elevation, 12 inches of natural moisture, and three times since 1970 has been 30 below zero there. And it's called the Gila Monster Gamble Oak. Wow, what a name. That's a good one. <laughs> oh, it's the coolest oak. And so even though it's not a Colorado native, but that border is just a man-made border. It's pretty much the same climate as what we experience up here. It just was landlocked from making it all the way up here. And by the time the Gamble Oaks that grow in Colorado, they became... It's called lignotubris, which means that they sucker from the roots. And so they make these colonies. And that was an adaptation because of fires. So the fires would sweep through and kill the tops from scorch. And then they would be protected by the earth's core. And then these suckers would come up and repopulate the ground again so that the bears and the rabbits and the turkeys could all eat the acorns and survive another year. So... Very interesting. I wouldn't be surprised that during the Cretaceous region 65 million years ago that the Gambloke were still here and they survived after that big meteor, meteor hit the Yucatan <laughs> and wiped out the dinosaurs it, yeah. in four days. <laughs> Is that how aspens reproduce as well through that same technique? They do, yes. You know, there's a real famous grove of aspens in Utah. It's called Pando. Mm -hmm. And it's 106 acres of one aspen. That's just that populated from root suckers. Pando, which is Latin for I spread, is located in Utah on the Colorado Plateau. Pando contains 47,000 trunks, all connected to a single root structure. Considered the largest organism on Earth, this behemoth stretches across 106 acres, an area twice the size of New York City's Grand Central Station. Unfortunately, because of human intervention and the disappearance of many predator species, Pando is actually slowly being eaten by deer and other grazers. Fortunately, hunters, environmentalists, ranchers, state officials, and landowners are now working together to save the giant aspen stand to manage the deer populations with strategic hunting and fencing off certain areas of the growth. And that technically they're just clones, right? They're not making a new 
treats. They're genetically the identical. Right, yeah. They are, yeah. You know, you can grow aspens from seed, but the seed dies so quickly within days of it falling off the tree that very few of them really repopulate themselves from seed. But as a nurseryman, we can. We just have to sow that seed, collect it, and sow it within a day, and then it will live. Interesting. It's awesome. <laughs> So speaking of aspens, the trembling aspen is the most widely distributed poplar in North America, ranging from Alaska to Mexico and east to New Brunswick, Canada. Aspens seem to be different from most other poplars, as in they're able to withstand significant stress. When the above-ground tree dies following a stand-replacing disturbance, shallow roots are the main source of suckers that reestablish the next stand. The section of large roots originating near the stump of this dead tree usually die within a few years. The distal ends, however, remain alive if they sucker. Thus, each of the major branches of the parent root becomes separate. Even though there is a partial loss of the original connectivity of the parent generation's roots at the time of each disturbance, the clone's roots may reconnect physiologically via grafts. Separated individual trees can therefore potentially share resources and hormones with their neighbors. This allows them to survive the extreme stress that may have killed their parent trees. A point of interest about aspens is that they represent the secondary succession of a forest environment. Succession is basically the development of a forest community over time, theoretically, albeit contentiously amongst researchers, leading to a climax community or a predetermined ecosystem based on the environment, the native plant communities suited to it, and a number of other factors. Secondary succession of aspen forest to pine forest can occur after a disturbance such as fire or logging. Being shade-intolerant trees, aspens are often the first to colonize the disturbed area due to their ability to quickly sprout from their roots. This is also why they typically colonize southern-facing aspects of hills and mountains. Pay attention to this next time you're in an aspen grove. Over time, as the soil stabilizes and nutrient levels change, coniferous trees like pines, for example, which are shade tolerant in their younger years, are given a foothold amongst the shady aspen groves. Eventually, they can take over, leading to a climax community of pine forests. However, as Alyssa pointed out, they may be able to migrate to an adjacent suitable habitat if it is also a treeless, sunny plot of land. That is, until they're crowded out again. It's a hard knock life for aspens. So you've been working at this nursery since 1996, but tell us a little bit of how you got started and your background and how you landed in this position. Well, I'm a, also a CSU graduate, and back in 1978, I uh, got a track scholarship to come to CSU. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I took H100 Horticulture 100 Basic Horticulture and took it, and they said, yeah, that sounds cool. I'm going to do it. So I became a horticulture major, but I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but being an 18-year-old kid, when I started having to learn the scientific names, I said, this is stupid. Why do I need to do that? And I failed. I failed the class and ended up two years at CSU and dropped off. But then horticulture became my hobby. And it wasn't until I did a myriad of things like construction. I was in the army. I got trained to be a nurse as a one-year nursing school. It sounds better than it was because <laughs> it wasn't professional nurses, a one-year nurse. And because the army didn't get enough professional nurses, so they would train soldiers to become nurses. But I think it was the first day in the Army that I realized I'm getting out as soon as I can. And so I used the GI Bill and went back to CSU and got my degree in horticulture. 
Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And so by that time, you know, I was in my early 30s and I was in love with horticulture and I'm still in love with it. And I always went the extra mile and constantly reading. And I remember when I met my wife, who I met her, she was getting a graduate degree in horticulture a year after I graduated. And she says, well, Scott, what do you like to do? And he said, well, you know, I like to read gardening books and I like to garden. She says, me too, you know, that's kind of like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was just so one-sided at that time, but I met the perfect match. I totally understand that. Speaking of your exploration in horticulture and you kind of going the extra mile for your love of plants, could you tell us about the Johnny Appleseed tree? Oh, yeah. This is probably one of my better stories. When I was in the Army, I had daydreamed about what my future was going to be like, and I was doodling on some paper, and I was like, Skogerbo and Sons Nursery, and <laughs> come trying to find you know various names. And I had realized that what I really loved was edible plants. And so I said, I'm going to just specialize in edible plants. And so I came back to my hometown, Fort Collins, because I was raised here. My dad was a CSU professor and started trying to find plants that were edible that had been tested back when universities and governments did testing of varieties for certain regions. And there were ones for the state of Colorado in the high plains. And I gathered up these lists of names and started looking for them and found out you couldn't buy them. You had to propagate them yourself because they were obscure ones because what grows well in Colorado might not necessarily grow well in Washington State, you know, apple-wise, or Michigan, or upstate New York, which, you know, are the traditional apple-growing areas. And so I had to find them from germplasm repositories or private collections or obscure nurseries. And so on this list, I found that there was a germplasm repository from the USDA in Geneva, New York. It was connected to Cornell University, and they had a list of names. And I was going down the list as all alphabetical and writing down the ones that I wanted to grow. And I got to there, and there was an apple called the Flower of Kent. And in the comments section, it said, Sir Isaac Newton's apple. And I started thinking, wow, is this the one that gave him the idea of the law of gravity? And so this is before the internet, you know, so you had to make a telephone call there, and people would actually answer the phone and answer your questions. (laughs) Was it like the tree or it, like a pro, you know, like it they a, got it from the a propagule? And then he says, if you want to know the reference, and he gave me the reference, and it was from the Royal Horticulture Society. And the man who wrote the story of the Flower of Kent was Sir Stephen Talens, and he had been a knight of the <laughs> English Empire. And so the story goes that it's kind of apropos now that we just got finished with the pandemic. And the universities were closed for a while and everybody was, had to stay home. That same thing happened with Isaac Newton. He was a 27-year-old postgraduate who was working as a fellowship at Cambridge. And the Black Death was sweeping through England in 1665. So they closed the university, sent everybody home. And it was at his mother's manor house in Woolthorpe Manor in Grantham, England, that her cooking apple, the Flower of Kent, where he saw the apple fall to give him the idea for the law of gravity. And that tree from 1665, 350 years more, is still alive. And the reason why it's still alive, it's crazy. What happened was that by 1815, there had been a big storm go through England and it blew the tree over because it was rotten in the middle. This was almost 150 plus years after Isaac Newton. 
had saw the apple fall, but because it was so famous, this was the tree that Isaac Newton saw the apple fall. They didn't just cut the tree down. They just let it hit the ground. It hadn't completely severed the cambium layer, so it was still getting sap up to the branches that were now laying on the ground. And so there's a famous sketch from 1815 of the tree, and now a photograph that you can still see online of Wolthorpe Manor of the tree. You can still see the trunk laying on the ground, and one of the minor branches that was sketched in 1815 has now become the tree. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so Cornell University and the USDA got cuttings from that tree and had it in their collection, so I have that tree. And so that made me start thinking, there's got to be so many more trees like that, you know, that I could add to my nursery. And so I started thinking about, hmm, Johnny Appleseed. There's got to be one. So I figured... Somebody had Johnny Appleseed tree around, you know, because he was an important part of our childhood, you know, the lore, the Americana of the man who spent his whole life just planting apple trees and wandering around the wilderness with a pot on his head, barefoot. and <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the dream, the American dream. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's mine. <laughs> yeah. John Chapman, a.k.a. Johnny Appleseed, was a 19th century horticulturalist who made significant contributions to the American westward migration. Chapman, the son of a farmer, was born on September 26, 1774 in Leominster, Massachusetts. In the beginning of the 19th century, he relocated to Ohio and planted seeds along the road that he had brought from Pennsylvania cider presses. Although his legend may give the impression that Johnny Appleseed planted at random and gave away seeds to needy settlers out of a sense of altruism, Chapman actually followed a calculated business plan. Chapman was successful because of booze, not fresh apples. At the time, fermented cider was perhaps a safer choice for settlers than drinking water. He would then trade his seedlings with new settlers in the area so that they could grow apples for their new homes. And get crunked up on that cider! Chapman was nice to these struggling pioneers, though, and would occasionally give them free seedlings. His kind disposition earned him the nickname Johnny Appleseed from appreciative frontiersmen. He was also a missionary for the new church, spreading its theological beliefs alongside his apple seeds. And he contributed to the harmonious coexistence of the native people and new settlers. He was also a vegetarian who pushed for animal welfare. W.D. Haley wrote a colorful account of Chapman's life for Harper's Weekly in 1871, driving the Johnny Appleseed legend into American popular culture. Since then, he has become an iconic figure in American literature, music, and film, serving as both a genuine but sort of fictitious depiction of an American hero. And so I started looking, and it wasn't there. There, Nobody had it. And I looked a long places. I kind of got obsessed about it and kept calling. And every lead I'd have, it'd be like a Ohio State University, and they'd say, well, you might try this retired professor or so-and-so has got a private collection in Indianapolis. He might have it. And it just went on and on and on, and they weren't there. So I kind of gave up. Then my wife got me a book. It was called The Book of Apples by Allison Sheldon, I think. It was a British pomology book, and she wrote a paragraph on American pomology, and then it said, John Chapman, a.k.a. Johnny Appleseed, told the story of him, and it said, there is one tree still reputed to be alive in 1961 in Ashland County, Ohio. And I had my scrap notes of all the people I'd called about, and I hadn't called anybody from Ashland County. So I thought, aha, I'm going to keep looking again. So my mother is a librarian, and she 
said, you know, the smartest person in town is usually the reference librarian. You know, of course, you know, the librarian would say that, and, but it's true. They are the smartest because <laughs> they that. read. <laughs> they read for their living. Yeah. And so I called up and talked to her and she said, oh, yes, uh, let me get the file out because John Apps had lived in our county. And she goes, oh, yeah, that tree, uh, oh, that died in 1965. Sorry to say. And I said, do you know if anybody got cuttings off of that? She says, I don't know. But the man whose farm is on, he's still living. His name is Roy Funk and his wife, Dorothy. Let me give you the number. So she got the phone book up, gave him his number. I gave him a call. And this old voice answered the phone. It's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and I introduced myself, told him about my quest. And did anybody ever take cuttings off that tree? I think they did. <laughs> and he said, hey, Dorothy, get the scrapbook out. There's a fella here who wants to know about the Johnny Appleseed tree. <laughs> and so he got it out and he said, here it is. Yeah, there was from uh, some school kids came down for a field trip studying Ohio history. And they're from Brunswick, Ohio. And one of the students took cuttings back. So that was my lead, just a seventh grader. Oh, no. A seventh grader, like sometime after 1961 and before 1965, had taken a cuttings back with him to Brunswick, Ohio, which is in the northern part of Ohio. So here we are, go again, calling, you know, this is in the 90s and the 60s, that's only 30 years between that. So I remember doing the calculations. Well, that teacher could be retired by now and maybe even a young retired, just freshly retired if she he or she started when they were in their 30s. And so I kept calling. And, oh, no, I don't know anything, but you might call this person. Oh, no, I don't remember. But call this teacher. I think they might know. And finally, $300 phone bill later. <laughs> that was when the right? yeah. is expensive. Phone bill about two G's flat. No need to worry, my accountant handles that. I found the teacher and she said, I don't remember the name of the student, but I remember who he gave him to. His name is Bill Eisen and he's a local orchardist and he runs an apple pie bakery, turns his apples into apple pies. And so I called him up and Bill Eisen, he was kind of a grumpy. He seemed grumpy to me. And I introduced myself again, and he's a, yeah, I have that tree. Uh, it, it's still there by my bakery. You have it? Would you mind sending me some sign? He goes, if you pay for the postage. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, for sure I'll pay for the postage. Is the apple good for anything? He says, I suppose. <laughs> so, well, is it good for fresh eating? He goes, oh, heavens no. <laughs> Is it good for cooking? He goes, I wouldn't think so. He says, well, what is it good for? He says, it's excellent for chucking at cats. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and that was the big thing about Johnny Appleseed's trees. I, I, and I came to realize after the Botany of Desire with Michael Pollan wrote his book about the apple and how Johnny Appleseed's apples were mostly turned into hard cider because water was bad for your health. You get sick from drinking the water and the alcohol in the cider would kill the microbes that cause disease and illnesses. And so Johnny's seeds were usually seedlings off of seedling trees and they'd kind of reverted back to nothing special. Still good enough to making hard cider and maybe occasionally there were ones that was pretty good, but nothing that was going to be, you know, the next 
Fuji app like of today or the Honeycrisp. They didn't ever measure up, but that wasn't a deal. It was mostly to make hard cider. Plant. More like survival, but not for yeah. a delicacy. You know, back in the day, people would make cider, but now there's a renaissance on making cider. And so I think that that's really kind of an exciting thing. So I got a hold of the sign. He sent them to me. I sent them the money back for the postage. And then I called Roy Funk, the old man whose tree it was on, and asked him, could you send me your scrapbook? Because I remember him page through the page. And he goes, oh, Scott, you know, I'm 92 years old. I uh, I don't know anything about those Xerox machines. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, I'll mail you the scrapbook. You just promised to send it back. And I said, yes, sir, I will. And so I copied it, had front page article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer in 1961. So that's where that British pomologist had got her reference correct and photographs dating back to the 40s, all the newspaper clippings from the 40s and 50s. And so it was really something else to bring back the last tree with historical documentation. And so I got much more than 15 minutes of fame from that (laughs) find. Turns out that newspaper articles from around the country, even I showed up in the American Airline in-flight magazine. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> I always read those. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone <captive>. does. <laughs> so how did the Johnny Appleseed apple taste? And did you ever try throwing it at a cat? That's what I want to know. Oh, please say yeah. no to the second question. <laughs> no, you know, I'm an animal lover. At times in our lives, my wife and I, we've had six dogs and six cats. We've had turkeys and chickens and guineas and ducks. And you should see our vet pills. Never <laughs> would I harm a cat. On we purpose. Love them. No way. <laughs> we love them. But the fruit is not as bad as I expected. Interesting. It's an attractive apple with red skin with kind of green stripes on it. It tastes like a red delicious, but blander. So it's still sweet, but it's bland. But it's crispy and juicy. So I'm thinking that it's a worthwhile apple. You didn't just have one apple. If you're a pioneer, you had an orchard of them. So you'd mix them all together. So you'd have ones that were bitter, sour, or sweet all mixed together and make a really nice blend, kind of like how they do today with the mixtures of all the ciders. So some enterprising young person could have a row of Johnny Appleseed trees and mix it with other varieties and wouldn't be lying when they said, Cider made from the, the last tree of Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> and that's grown at your house currently? Yeah, I have it at my house. But in the spirit of Johnny Appleseed, I didn't just control that. I gave it away to whoever wanted to propagate it. So the easiest place for people listening to this podcast to get it is not to call me because I only make about <laughs> 10 of them a year, but to go to Rain Tree Nursery out of Butts, Washington. It's a mail order and that's the guy that I sent the sign with to, and he has been propagating it for over 20 years now. The coolest <laughs> thing about that story is just the sequence of kind gestures from people and their amazing bookkeeping that they could look back 30 years ago and know what school child they gave the graph to. That is such a cool story. It is true. And you think about it, if you lived on the farm that had the last tree of Johnny Appleseed, I would have a scrapbook too. Mm, Yeah. True. In the school years, the fall, winter, and spring. And so it's the time of the year, not so much the spring, but the winter is when farmers just kind of sit around and have it easy, maybe fixing some equipment and 
taking care of their animals, but not the field work. So he probably just jotted it down, you know, in the scrapbook. And then uh, the one thing that occurred to me was that if it wasn't for the curiosity of a seventh grader, right? Yeah, seventh <laughs> grader is what? 12, 12 years old. Said, can I get a piece of that? And then went and found a guy that would grow it for him. I hope he's listening. I know. And I wish that teacher <laughs> remembered his name. Oh, that would have been great. But that's the real hero of this story. That is so cool. Can we talk a bit about your propagation methods in the greenhouse? What substrate do you use? Or do you use any rooting hormones or integrated pest management, things like that? Yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you grow as many native plants as we do, it's just a part of it because there's probably 400 different trees and shrubs that we grow every year, at least over the years. Maybe not every year we do 400 of them. But the propagation season doesn't start in the spring. It starts maybe even sometimes earlier in the midsummer when the seeds ripen because you can't just go to a store and buy the seeds. You can't go to Burpees and Henry Fields catalogs and buy twinberry, honeysuckle, and boulder raspberries or skunk bush sumacs, you have to go up and get them yourself. And that's my best time of the year where I get to drive up to Poudre Canyon or go out <laughs> into grasslands to the east and the canyons of east, southeastern Colorado and in New Mexico and Panhandle of Oklahoma. And so I collect the seeds and then you have to treat them properly because oaks, for instance, maybe you're not a propagator, but you're just someone that says, oh, some acorns I picked up and you put them in your pocket, bring them home, put them on your dresser, and you forget about them for a week, the seed's already dead because it's a type of a seed called recalcitrant, and they die if the moisture content drops below a certain level, and they're always transpiring. To give a little bit more info on recalcitrant seeds, the mechanisms for protecting protein structure and membrane integrity in the case of water loss are substantially lacking in most recalcitrant seeds. Therefore, these seeds cannot endure drying without losing viability. The concentration of cytoplasm that interacts with proteins on the seed surface increases as water loss increases. In normal seeds, proline, oligosaccharides, and other low molecular heat shock proteins form a water-associated shell around the protein. Sugar molecules then replace water at the protein surface as the seed dries stabilizing the folded protein in a glassy matrix until the seed can be rehydrated. And that is how a seed can withstand drying while a recalcitrant seed has to stay moist. So with oaks, you have to keep them moist and prevent them from drying out, usually in plastic bags with a little bit of moisture in them and in the refrigerator just to slow down the respiration rate. Or in nature, they really truly depend on squirrels or other animals taking them burying them and forgetting about them. When they want to get a midwinter snack, where did I put that acorn? <laughs> so that's the part of it. And then one of the stories I really like to say is that the boulder raspberry, it's Rubus deliciosa or the thimbleberry. So um, delicious. Yeah, they are delicious. They're just as sweet as regular raspberry, but the seed's bigger, so it's not as delectable because of the size of the seed. But it needs acid scarification to work. And I didn't know that at first. And I could hardly get any of the seeds to germinate, none of them. The first year I tried it, I put them through stratification, which is I tried to imbibe them with water and then stored them in a refrigerator all winter long and then put them in uh, pots and then none of them germinated until the next year I was out collecting 
thimbleberry seeds again to give it a second go around, and I found a pile of bear scat. And so, what is nature teaching us here? It means that this 4th of July, when the thimbleberries start to ripen, that's what I always got in my head, 4th of July, because it's easy to remember that. Bears eat them, the stomach acid, just enough to break down the hard seed coat enough so that they can imbibe water. The bear scat sits there, the rains come, then the snows come. But before the snow, they sat there in warmth, absorbing the moisture. So there's warm stratification for roughly 60 days. And then cold stratification covered with snow for another at least 60 days. So I emulated that. I soaked the seed in concentrated sulfuric acid for 20 minutes, washed the sulfuric acid away, put them in a plastic bag with moist medium like vermiculite is my favorite. For 60 days, I just put it in my sock drawer, take them out, and then put them in the refrigerator for the next 60 days, and they come up every seed germinates. Wow. So it's like... Henry David Thoreau says he went to the woods because he wanted to live life deliberately, not to learn when it came to die that he had not lived. And so that's to learn what nature had to teach. And so that's kind of what it's all about. And I've been doing that for a long time, and especially with Colorado Native Plants, because there's recipes out there, but there's not a book. I would buy that book. Yeah. (laughs) I know people always tell me I got to write it down. I should write a book. You should write a book. All right, guys, that's it for part one. I know this is kind of a long episode, but hope you're all enjoying it so far. And just bear with us. There's another episode that's going to be available right now. It's a release at the same time as this one. So hope you enjoy it. <laughs>